Founders Fake Startup Supercharge. I am here today with Roland Sieblink. He is the CEO and founder of Midstage Institute. Now, Roland's an interesting guy. He has gone through three unicorns, helping them grow to become unicorns. And now he works directly with startup founders, helping them navigate their the challenges they face and grow their companies. And we are going to talk because this is a special time. So right now, uh, a lot of startups are struggling, especially if you're not a high-flying AI startup raking in hundreds of millions of dollars, then you're one of those other startups, the other 90% of startups, which are being ignored by venture capital and, and are really struggling to raise money. So Roland, welcome to the show. And can you tell us a little about your background, about the three unicorns that you helped build? Absolutely, Steve. Well, it's an honor to be on your show. I've been listening quite a lot, and this has been uh, this is an honor to be able to to be here. Uh, let's talk about the three uh, startups uh, that turned into unicorns while I was there. So uh, each was a journey that took about three to four years, and moving from one so from about ten to about a thousand people in those three years. So I've really been through that scaling. Part. Uh, the first one was in Belgium in the 1990s. Uh, it was called Telenet, and it was one of the no new telecom providers. And now most people there were focused on what then seemed like a solid business of fixed line telephony. Uh, but I was lucky enough to be asked to develop this newfangled technology that nobody had heard of called broadband internet. Uh, and in those days, this was the kind of product that everyone over 30 did not trust themselves to work on because it seemed like too techy and too much out there. So luckily enough, uh, me and my technical co-founder, if you will, uh, had 100 people reporting to us while we were both only mid-20s. And that was an amazing journey, you know, 900% growth rates for three years in a row. So you can only imagine uh, the second one was also in the uh, broadband internet space, but that was more post uh, bust, if you will. So that was in Switzerland. The company was called Bluewin. It was a internet provider um, ran by uh, the, or bought, I should say, by the dominant telecom provider, Swisscom. And they had been going, getting ready for an IPO. Uh, they had been building all these products and all these strategies. And then just as they were ready to launch it, the dot-com bubble burst. And so that was more of a turnaround job where we had to say, now, how do we actually move from this, uh, let's call it hype creating, growth optimization towards more of a, uh, how do we keep this solid? How do we make this sustainable? How do we make this into a maybe proper business, if I may use the word there, you know? Uh, which I think is something I draw on a lot now that the markets are also changing and, and clients are asking for help and how do we get this startup to survive, right? Um, and then uh, the third one was uh, after I had moved to my own startup to Silicon Valley, I was based in San Francisco, and then I was involved with Rocketfuel, which was one of the first companies applying artificial intelligence to the placement of advertising, so long before Google and Facebook did. And that was, again, uh, an amazing unicorn journey, starting with just a few people and then uh, picking up programmatic advertising, IPOing three years later, and then also seeing a lot of the pitfalls that we had not thought about and unfortunately losing a lot of the share value again afterwards, which is also part of the story. 
that drives my passion in helping founders, you know, avoid those pitfalls, uh, making sure they focus on the right things, not the wrong things. Because invariably, Steve, as you know, founders are the first time going through this journey, even if they bring it all the way to IPO, they don't necessarily have any experience in what they have to focus on. And that's now that I've gone through it three times and always been close to founders, always been in some kind of a coaching position. I'm happy to share that with a lot more founders and make them successful in that tricky mid stage. So I'm very curious. Uh, Rocket Fuel IPO, you know, that's the holy grail for, yeah. for every entrepreneur out there. And you're doing incredibly well. Then what mistakes were made? What happened? Well, um, to the degree, I can say, of course, uh, I think one mistake that was definitely made was to promise uh, the moon in terms of uh, continuing growth. So part of the IPO prospectus was this company is growing, uh, is doubling in size every three months, and we can sustain that. And that, I think, is, um, as you know, mathematically almost impossible um, it is it impossible. Was, it was nice to maybe say that to investors. And of course, we had a huge pop of the price. I think the original range was 21 to 24, and it popped over 60 the first day. So, you know, that was a good Well, you sold all your shares. Well, if I had been <laughs> able to as an insider, then of course it would have done so. But uh, that's the dirt, one of the dirty little secrets of Silicon Valley. Almost always employees are unable to sell their shares yes. until at least six months after the IPO, right? Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, by that time, typically the price will already have come down substantially. We still made a good profit, not life-changing perhaps, but still had a good uh, a good profit from it. But um, yes, there's a, there's a lot that was maybe hyped for that initial uh, price and maybe it was less focused on a sustainable uh, price range, uh, six months, one year down the road. And that's so easy. That's such an easy mistake for entrepreneurs to fall into. You know, you, you drink your Kool-Aid and you believe it, you believe your own hype and you start, you know, it becomes, it's, it's a good thing you say that because I, I, one of the things I keep saying to founders is, you know, once you get to the mid stage and you're starting to prepare for an IPO, um, you know, your Kool-Aid still needs to be there, but you need to mix it with the healthy doses of some truth serum every now and then, right? Exactly. So you wake up and see reality that it's not going to be this hyper growth. You know, at we least saw this internally, in right? I mean, you, I understand that you may not want to sell this sure. to investors, but you know, at least internally, don't drink your own Kool-Aid and believe that everything is is exactly like you like you pitch it. Yeah, and the, because you're spending based on those beliefs, you're, you're spending for growth, massive mm -hmm. growth. And if it doesn't materialize, you're in trouble. So what ended up happening to Rocket Fuel? I'm curious. Are they still around? Uh, they actually got bought. So uh, I think the new CEO saw the writing on the wall, was trying to reposition it towards enterprise uh, but I think the uh, the quarterly predictions were falling short and there were some offers on the table. And so ultimately they sold it off to a company that was trying to consolidate some of these uh, programmatic advertising plays. 
And then I think that company also went uh, down and then that got sold again. So it's basically been in consolidating place ever since. I've lost touch by now. <laughs> yes, this this happens. We all ride the roller coaster of tech. And speaking Absolutely. of the roller coaster, there yeah. are a lot of entrepreneurs listening now who are on that roller coaster themselves. Yeah. So I know you you personally help entrepreneurs through this crazy journey. You know, mm -hmm. you've been through it three times with you know, companies that were successful um, to varying degrees. Now, what do you, what is some of the most critical advice you could give entrepreneurs right now listening with their companies? So one of the most critical points I often make is that do not just take any startup advice for granted because startup advice is very specific to the phase that you are in. For example, I see many uh, startup founders that take this gospel of uh, build, measure, learn, stay agile, you know, pivot around all the time and still stick to that when they are 100, 150 people or more. At that time, of course, you're basically navigating a bigger ship and you have to give people time for changes. You also have to sometimes stick it out longer. So that advice is one of those examples that may not actually be applicable anymore to your uh, stage that you're in. Uh, at the same time, uh, the opposite almost, they often hire people from large companies, let's say from a Salesforce or an IBM or whatever, say, okay, we need more executive experience. And then they start following playbooks that were really built for companies of tens of thousands of people, not appropriate for a company of just 100 people, you know, too bureaucratic, too solid, too reliant on consultants and big teams. And so that's one reason why we said, you know, the mid stage of a startup really has a different playbook than both the early stage and also then this kind of mature uh, incumbent stage, right? People need to think different. And often with, this is how we can reconcile the, let's say, startup people and the uh, professionals that they've hired on an executive team and have them align around the same playbook rather than fighting it out all the time between are we a startup or are we a professional company? That's yeah, that's a really important mindset to have because mm -hmm. you are no longer a startup. You're not at the early stage where you can come up with new ideas every day, pivot, try something out, go a different direction. And then you're not at uh, the later stage where where you're the dominant player. Things are pretty set. You're making longer term plans. You're kind of in that middle zone. So let's talk about that. What's yeah. some what are pieces of advice you give entrepreneurs in that middle zone? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. I couldn't have said it better. It's almost like the adolescence of a person, right? Like you cannot act like a little kid anymore and be successful, but you also cannot act like a guy in your 50s with with the suit on all the time. You know, it's like you have to find your own way when you're like in, in your late teens, early 20s, right? And the same goes for a company. So to answer your question, Steve, um, the key thing I think is what do you have in mind as the goal to achieve? And you mentioned that you're not a dominant company yet, but I do think that should actually be the goal, right? So how do you move from that initial product market fit that you have achieved by that time to what I would call product market dominance, right? How do you turn that small fit, that small niche, the, the people that love your product and are willing to invest in it into something that you can start defending and that becomes unassailable? Uh, that, I think, is the key thing to keep in mind from a strategic point of view. And what that then means is that you have to navigate um, the, the broader markets. You'll start to see more competition. 
how do you deal with that competition? How do you compete? How do you not try to boil the ocean with like three, four or five different products that, you know, are only tangentially tangentially related to what you had originally, but how do you keep mm. focusing on that one part that you actually have? Now, I think as, as you know, in working with founders, many founders are almost appalled at how difficult it is to build a go-to-market machine, to actually persuade customers to keep them happy. And often they misinterpret that as like, I must be in the wrong area, let me try something else. And then they pivot and they try something new. And very often that is exactly the wrong recipe. At this stage, it's often more about just sticking it out, learning how to be better at your go-to-market machine, at keeping customers happy, at collecting money, all that stuff that is boring. All the basics, sense, right? right? The basics uh, <laughs> that are often overlooked at the early stage. Because the founders we work with, Steve, I'm sure you've seen the same thing. They're not usually business people, right? They are trained mm -hmm. as engineers, as product people. They're visionaries so they wanna, very often. So they want to build something new. Exactly. <laughs> they don't want to refine and perfect what they built. Instead, they're off to the next shiny object, the next idea that seems Yeah, and, if, and, and that's perfectly fine. But that means that you're not going to get to that like product market dominance that would ultimately you know, build big financial success, both for you and your employees and your investors. So these art of sticking it out and just uh, trying and trying again with the thing you've already found is I think an, a really important aspect of what I try to teach people. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So entrepreneurs, usually, you know, they're looking for that thing, that one thing that competitors don't have, that the marketplace is, re is in high demand. So mm -hmm. there's, there's, there's their customers out there and they're like, I want that thing. They develop that thing that usually gives their company a boost. That's their entrance way. And they develop it and a bunch of other stuff along the way. And they get to this mid stage and then things aren't as exciting because they've developed that core product. And they also may begin, they face competition because of course, competitors are developing along with them. So they're not growing as fast. Uh, frustration sets in, sets in and they're like, well, we need another thing to give us a boost. And what you're yes. saying is you don't need another thing. You don't need to develop another thing on top of this. In fact, you need to go the opposite. You need to pare away, pare down what isn't essential and focus on that core thing that you're going to win on. Absolutely. And I think the other thing we often tell people is that um, it is actually less about the core product at that stage. And it's more about all the call it complementary assets that you build. For example, it's not about, you know, adding features. Often it's about adding a sales process, uh, adding, mm. uh, you know, the proper marketing positioning, uh, adding support so that people can actually deal with your product, adding customer success, sometimes even things like training and, and, uh, and consulting resources. So, the, the frame that you can often apply is to tell people, look, you're no longer building a product. Now you're building a go-to-market machine. Sorry, that's mm. the other dirty little secret in Silicon Valley. It's actually less about the product than a building to go-to-market machine, right? Uh, as right, you and I you know. Found, you found the product market fit. You found yes. that, right? You wouldn't have got to the mid-stage without it. Um, so you you know that customers want this, but then how do you compete? And like we know, the product is one thing, you know, the feature set and everything else, it has to be good and it has to do what they want. But at the end of the day, the, their decision to stick with you 
or choose you is based on even a lot more than your product. Like you say, it's based on all these other, you know, can they get support for it? You know, do they understand how to use it? How do they integrate it into their business? Can you build up a pipeline, your sales pipeline and refine that so your customer acquisition costs are low? So these are, this is the area where you come in and really start to address these issues. Absolutely. And um, I would say it's not only about do they stick with you and are they willing to uh, to invest in you or fund you, mm -hmm. uh, but even how do they find you, right? Uh, how oh, yeah. do they even know your product is out there? And so I think that's often the, the kind of engineering mindset or product visionary mindset of the founders will lead them to think like, oh, this product is simply not good enough because guess what? It never gets close to your original vision, right? That's idealistic in your head. But really, if you look at all the successful companies out there, which one can we truly say has a perfect product? All the products are to some degree shitty, if I may use that word on your podcast. Yes, we, we uh, use these <laughs> products, you know, Facebook and all these other ones. And there's a million things I would change. There's a million things that are wrong with them, but... The success of the company is defined by the founder caring less about that than caring about market success, right? Mm -hmm. And whether that's virality for a consumer product or it's like a solid B2B sales process or it's product-led growth or any combination of the, of the former, um, in the end, it's all about founders saying, essentially, my product is good enough or my innovation pace is good enough. And now we need to build that market and we need to get customers, set ourselves aggressive growth targets and keep those customers. And that's how we build a successful company. Not about the product anymore. So can you tell us any anecdotes or stories about entrepreneurs who face challenges in this area in the mid stage and actually overcome them? Oh, yes, absolutely. So um, uh, one customer I worked with uh, in Switzerland, uh, they had uh, a, um, it was a, a very good uh, software development kit, basically replacing some kind of open source solution with something that was much more solid. And um, they uh, were able to uh, sell that to customers that were, were looking for a more premium solution. So let's say when they use, everyone uses the open software version, it was constantly faulty. And they said, you know, with our product, yes, it's paid, but you will get a far lower error rate, right? Um, so uh, initially they kept just adding features to that software to make it even uh, more powerful, but they kind of lost the script with uh, the people because they said, you know, all I'm looking for is a better replacement for this open source software. I'm not actually looking for all these additional features that I'm not even sure my product people need, right? Um, and the they, other and actually features can make it more confusing for people yes. because you have all these features, they don't understand well, what to do at a certain point. That's exactly right. It makes, makes it confusing. The other thing they did wrong initially was they... Uh, had no post-sales support because they said, well, mm. it's an SDK, so people will just figure it out and we have documentation. <laughs> and it they're took like them... us, they're engineers. <laughs> exactly. And they were, right? And, you know, generally yeah. when you talk to them, engineers will say, I don't need that, right? Uh, yeah. But yeah. then, of course, uh, because they pay for it and there is a license fee involved, people do expect a certain quality and support. And so it took them years before they actually started building a proper customer success function, 
uh, checking mm. in with people, seeing where their problems were. And then you actually find the features uh, that mm. uh, you need to build to make the customer uh, happier with your product. But those features may not be proper engineering features. It may be simply things like, oh, there's a dashboard that shows how many errors you had and what you can do to resolve them, right? All the boring stuff, if you will, that actually helps mm -hmm. the customer do their job better. So when they did this, when they refocused um, and you were helping them, uh, uh, their, what happened to their sales? How did, how did it change their business? So their sales were already growing well, but they were really stuck in that like early adopter phase, right? So I think mm -hmm. we all know the crossing the chasm framework. Mm -hmm. And that was very typical there. It's like we went through a list of, um, you know, their all their major customers, mapped them at like, are they uh, innovative? Are they early adopters? Are they early majority? There was only one that was early majority and that customer was actually at the time at risk of leaving because they said your support is not good enough. And that really opened their eyes to see, oh, we have to invent, reinvent the way we position our product. We can no longer focus on just the tolerant early adopters that keep, uh, you know, that will figure things out just like the likes of us. We have to realize the big market is in the early majority, maybe the late majority later on. And how do we compete there? It's with references, it's with support, it's with integrators, it's with consulting, uh, you know, documentation, all that stuff that nobody really thinks is the real product, but that actually matters the most, right? Yeah, and they probably didn't have people on their team to even do most of those functions. So, uh, no, exactly. They needed to build that up from uh, from scratch. And very often that takes six months to a year of like uh, re repeat workshops where you keep making the same point again. It's not my job to make the decision, but I can only point to what other companies have done at that phase. Uh, and to come back to your original question, Steve, as soon as they got that fixed, their sales started tripling, quadrupling, and they made unicorn mm. status, I believe, less than 18 months later. Oh, fantastic. So it really mm -hmm. worked. Yeah, it did work. <laughs> it really Absolutely. got them. It yeah. got them to that dominant stage that they needed to go to in their business. The problem, Steve, is that very often the thing that holds you back is a complete blind spot for you, right? So mm -hmm. um, it's almost impossible, in my experience, for people to figure out for themselves what they need to resolve because it is often a total blind spot, sometimes even something that calls that causes some resistance in your mindset. For example, this company that said we don't need customer success because it's it's all tech people. They don't need that. They say they say they don't need it. Why would we fix that, right? Uh, and of course, what happened is that they were focused on one segment in the market and didn't realize there was a much bigger segment lurking just around the corner who were just waiting for them to launch their support resources. Yes, yes. Bigger companies with more people who expect that support. They're used to it. They're not. They're not like and guess what? Who, and guess yeah. what? Are willing to pay for it big time too? Yes, so exactly. Those are the ones who will. Their price increased. I think they doubled it, if not two and a half times higher for those folks, uh, and they were happy wow. to pay for it. Yeah, because they're with a big company. They have the money. They just don't want to hassle. So, <laughs> they need somebody uh, so to see, really... see their see their a right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's talk about right now. So yeah. right now in the marketplace, what we're seeing is a few companies are getting all the gold, right? All yeah. the all the venture money is going to a few companies. We we keep reading about them. Well, the majority, the vast majority of companies are struggling. Yeah. So what advice can you give to like mid-stage startups out there that are really struggling financially, 
um, how can they navigate this current? Climate? Yeah. So I think uh, I think it is important for them to kind of embrace this reality and uh, properly assess where they are. So you know, most of us are not in the core of generative AI, which is attracting all the money at this stage. And so that means if we're dependent on the overall venture market, overall venture market is in a slump right now. Now, will it turn around? Possibly, I personally expect us to see more successes again in 2024, but that still means that at this stage, you can no longer play the playbook that used to be the common one until uh, two years, one and a half year ago, where you just keep funding everything with additional rounds of money, right? It means in order to thrive, you have to survive, and that means you have to um, find ways of stretching your runway longer. Um, and that typically means optimize less for this growth at all cost mentality that you were probably taught by your own investors uh, as recently as one year ago, right? That is what you can no longer afford. And I think that's where many founders uh, really have to uh, look at their company through a new lens, sometimes with external help and seeing how many of the things that they're doing are actually all driven by that growth at all cost mentality versus um, you know solid business that's already there that could actually be profitable, but is burdened by all the extra expense that really at this stage you cannot afford. So yeah, you know, just spending on customer acquisition is not necessarily the best strategy in, in the current climate actually focusing on the customers you have, creating yes. more value for them, stripping away, you know, unnecessary costs while figuring out what they really, really need. Like, what are they really after? You know, there may be things that a lot of these startups are offering that aren't that valuable to the customer. They don't even know it because they haven't had those conversations. Absolutely. So, so what we what we often do is some some waterfall charts. So one is exactly like you're saying, okay, how much are we getting from uh, current customers, growth of current customers versus new customers, and then the churn, of course, right? And how much are we spending on each? Very often, uh, from a revenue perspective, it looks like, oh, that's kind of easily evenly spread. But then you look at it from a product perspective, sorry, mm -hmm. profit perspective. So after you take away the, the cost there, and you suddenly start seeing there's one highly profitable segment, which is usually current customers that could be growing more. Right. And then all the mm -hmm. other money is basically going down the drain in, as you say, customer acquisition in segments that are not, not interested or right. uh, or different perspectives. Right. You can do a waterfall chart also on a perspective of uh, what's our core product versus what are some new products we have launched versus something that's still in the lab that we're spending a lot of money on. Again, this mm -hmm. is all focused on uh, trying to drive growth that at this stage you probably cannot afford to such an extent. I mean, I want to be nuanced. I, I want to say like, of course, you should still spend some money on customer acquisition, but the point is be smart about it and don't overspend uh, in terms of things like you would only get a, see a payback in two or three years. That is what you cannot afford at this stage, right? Same for yes. new products, same for new geographies, same for new channels. To a large degree, the advice is stick with what works already and try to strip away some of the other experimental, innovative approaches, not forever, but just enough so that you can survive and on your own accord until maybe the market turns or until uh, you have an attractive enough business to say this might be acquired. 
Yeah. And also, how do you get more value out of these existing customers, right? Because you already have them, you've acquired them, uh, you have, you can talk to them. There, there are things that you may be able to give them that you may be able to charge more for that aren't a lot, uh, you know, heavy R&D type things. Absolutely. And, and that almost comes back to our previous points, right? That uh, companies are often heavily driven by what are the new features on the roadmap that we're trying to drive. Mm -hmm. But if you focus on current customers, very often that's not actually their main concern. What may be their main concern is like uh, a generate PDF button that hasn't worked for three years, you know. <laughs> Or and, or some sort of support mechanism or training. Yeah, or, an, or, or or invoices that should come on time or uh, yeah, something yeah. simple. And it's almost yeah. always the experience of uh, people when they do start talking to their biggest customers that some of these things are way too easy to solve and nobody's ever picked them up. Maybe because they just weren't exciting enough. And yeah, this is and they just kind of get lost in the shuffle. Of, yeah, exactly. Know, and this of, this is something, Steve, that maybe I can point to here. I feel uh, a lot of founders and a lot of executives in startups are ultimately driven in their decision making by dopamine. So we you know, all are today. We all look at are. social networks, right? They and trained us absolutely. Look and the reason, and the reason with. why, as as uh, why we like startups in the first place, is because of these dopamine hits, right? Uh, but I do think that if you do want to bring your startup to a level where it's sustainable and it builds a big market for itself that's defensible, then you have to be able to at least uh, identify, is this a decision I'm making rationally or is this a decision I'm making because it excites me because it's a dopamine hit, right? And if at I least be able to take take a distance from that every now and then. In, in our society, we are addicted to these dopamine. Oh, hits, yeah, you know? absolutely. And the whole internet has been engineered around them. And now it's <laughs> very hard, you know, and it bleeds into our business, right? Because we think, you know, it's not just entertainment that's hitting us or social networks or, you know, contacting people. It's like literally every aspect because we get accustomed to it. So it is a big actual social problem that sometimes having an out, somebody from the outside who isn't like, you know, on the treadmill with you who can step in and say, look, why are you doing that? Because it's exciting or because your business is demanding it. And yeah. that's a hard, like you say, you pointed out earlier, it's very hard when for you to see that because you are so driven by your own internal impulses that a lot of times having external consultants come in and really ask those hard questions can, can open up a path for you that you don't see. Absolutely. You, you got it. And I think the other thing to realize is many people uh, that you've hired who report to you really don't dare to say as much to you as you would like them to. Uh, yeah. This is this is a learning for many of the startup founders we work with. We always ask at the very beginning of a workshop as the founder, please make sure to speak last, to sit back, observe your team first. And it's almost always shocking how in the beginning they feel completely uncomfortable with that. And then in half an hour, an hour, you start seeing them loosen up and then they start getting excited that, wait, that person, I thought they were the weakling on my team, but I'm so impressed with all their contributions. They're saying exactly what I would have thought or what, what, uh, what the priority should be. Whereas that other person, I thought they were my strongest. They're not saying anything. 
And then I asked, what do you think? Because they were just they were just nodding and going, yes, yes, yes. Whenever they were, they were exactly very, very good at, um, you know, being the parrots, let's say. Right. (laughs) And and that made you feel great about them. Like they were they were completely in sync with you. But when you actually listen to them, they don't really have those ideas. Those were just your ideas. That's exactly right. So I think we're going to wrap up here. And Mm -hmm. I would like. Uh, for you to tell our audience out there, all these entrepreneurs, how they can reach you and uh, anything more, any last words you have for them. Yeah, so we've collected quite a few resources for startups that are going through these uh, tough times on midstage.org slash thrive. Um, and that is really uh, a collection of a profitability tool. How do you How do you identify those profitable tools that you have already? And, uh, and strip away some of the growth investments that you may not be able to afford at this stage. There's also my contact information, the links to my books and the resources that my other colleagues at Midstage Institute have pulled together. So that's where I would start, midstage.org slash thrive. And of course, feel free to connect uh, to me on LinkedIn or uh, email me as well. All the coordinates are there. I'm Captain Hoff, CEO of Founderspace the leading global startup accelerator. I'm also author of the award-winning books, Make Elephants Fly, Surviving a Startup, and The Five Horses.